Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. With fast shipping, the best card sleeves, deck boxes, binders, and all the modern, legacy, and commander staples you could ever want, Card Kingdom is there with the hookup. If you'd like to support the show, just use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com KTM. Order your Guilds of Ravnica singles and sealed product now. You know you want that sweet Assassin's Trophy action. Great removal is, well, great. Thank you for supporting the show when you shop at cardkingdom.com KTM. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. Tune into their stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for daily legacy action. I had the honor of being invited to Paragon City Games to film a vlog about their Heroes League Invitational Qualifier series. The players there love competitive magic. The store is super clean, open, friendly, and a great place to play magic. Their staff is super friendly and they have an amazing streaming setup to broadcast live feature matches. Talking about it doesn't do it justice, you'll have to go see the vlogs I made to know what I'm talking about. Just go to facebook.com slash paragoncitygames and click on videos. I made one each on standard, modern, and legacy. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to the talented Magic player, poker player, and Master Chef finalist, David Williams. David's first time playing poker was at the Pro Tour many years ago. Through his love of strategy games and incredible skill, David went on to win a World Series of Poker bracelet and made a career from professional poker. David is fiercely competitive and smart enough to dismantle any game he gets his hands on. And that's how David got onto the show Master Chef and beat out a room full of competitors to make it to the finals. He's been a pillar of the Magic community for a long time and I'm happy to have him on the show. I hope you enjoy my interview with David Williams. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. My name is Sam Tang, I'm your host, and today I'm with the competitive David Williams. David, how's it going? Hey man, thanks. Uh, it's going pretty good. Relaxing Wednesday afternoon, no real responsibilities today because I have the day off from parenting. My daughter's with her mother today, so plan is to uh, organize, plan uh, the up upcoming magic trips, see what I'm going to do about the pre-release this weekend, and uh, just enjoy the day. Now, I uh, introduced you, David, as the competitive because you are quite the talented magic player, poker player, as well as master chef competitor. Yeah, I, I guess you could say uh, I like I like to compete. I like uh, the challenge of battling wits or spatulas or whatever you want to do with, uh, <laughs> with other people. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm competitive, but it doesn't mean I'm, I wouldn't consider myself like hyper competitive where... That's all I care about. I only want to win. I mean, one of my favorite things about Magic is just the people and playing with people. And I've been known to build a commander deck here and there and play for fun. It's hard to, to switch off that spiky side of my brain and just make a deck purely for fun. I always want to have uh, make sure it can hang at least. But uh, I enjoy I enjoy Magic for fun. And I want to get more into how you learned how to play poker so well as also your competition on Master Chef. But like all things, we start at the beginning. David, where did you grow up and how did you find magic? So I grew up in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Technically, I, I was in Arlington. I lived in Fort Worth, but I spent all my time and my magic playing in Arlington. 
I was born to a single mother, and she was always into all types of games. I remember as a, a small child, she played a lot of video games. Like we had an Atari when I was three, four years old, and I have some vivid memories of just watching her play. And then I started playing myself. Uh, we played board games. We played card games. I mean, we my mom has always been a gamer, and I think she got that from my grandfather, who was big into he plays he played dominoes until he died, you know, recently, and he played card games in the neighborhood and with family. So I think I just came from a family of gamers in a sense, you know, like I spent a lot of my childhood, my mom would come to Vegas and bring me because um, back then they were a little more laid back with the rules and you could have your kids kind of just running around the casino or whatever. But anyways, I was just born into a game playing family and uh, was always looking for the right game for me. I mean, I liked most games, but I get bored easily. I needed something that was dynamic, that was changing, which as you as we're going to get to, you know, magic is, which is why I'm still interested in it. But uh, I remember we went to a, God, I don't know what kind of store it was, like a small bookstore, I think it was in Fort Worth. And the funny thing is, I think magic in 93, one of the first places it came out was in Texas. I think Gen Con was there or some convention, maybe Origins, or there was something where magic premiered in Texas super early. I don't know the details exactly, but it's it's out there. Anyways, I saw what I believe were either beta or unlimited packs, but they were it was uh, booster packs at the shelf at this little shop. And I was with my mom and I said, hey, what the heck is this? And he said, oh, it's a really cool new game, but uh, I don't know much about it. And I was like, well, whatever. I'll just give me the give me how much are they? And I think they were like a dollar forty nine or two bucks a pack. He's like, I'm like, just give me all those. I'll do. I'll take the, those 10 or 20 packs. My mom was like, yeah, we'll learn it. And the guy says. No, you don't want to get those because they don't have an instruction book and you won't know how to play. I'm like, well, do you have an instruction book? He's like, it comes in like a bigger pack, which was a starter deck. He's like, so you should probably wait till we get some starter decks in and uh, then you'll have a rule book and you'll know how to play. You can each get one and then you can play. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. I'll hold off. And we just bought what we bought. And the sad part about this is I didn't ever at the time think to call them back or I should have just bought them, obviously, you know, the value wise. But I just forgot about it because it was just in passing. And sure enough, like about a month or two later, I run across some cards at another place. And I think at this stage we were on to, God, what set was it? Somewhere between Unlimited and Revised. I don't know if Revised came out before uh, Arabian Nights or Legends and all those sets. I know they were all crammed. I mean, if you look at the history of Magic, all those sets were really crammed into like one year period. But anyways, I bought some cards. I bought a few packs. Oh, I left out a part. I actually bought a rule book. There was a little rule book you could buy, like a hardcover. It's like a paperback, but kind of hard paperback, like a thick rule book. And I remember buying this rule book, and it was like Ginny cast like wild growth on her forest, and Bob has a shivan dragon. And I remember I just sat and read this rule book, having never seen a card in person, and thought, <laughs> man, I wish I, I wish I had this game because it sounds so cool. And I just kept reading this rule book, looking for where to find cards. And I found this gaming shop in Arlington, Texas called Games Galore. And I, I was calling places and I was like, do you sell Magic the Gathering? And everyone's like, no, what is that? Finally, I find this place in the phone book because that's how long ago this was. I'm just going down the phone book, hobby shops and gaming shops. This place called Games Galore answers the phone. And he's like, why, yes, that's primarily mostly what we deal in. Come on down. And I was like, oh, my. And I remember I told my mother, I'm like, I found a place. You have to take me. 
So she couldn't take me, I think. So my cousin, I was I think I was 13. He was 16. He drove me down. And it's sad because he never was into it. And I wish he, he was like a big brother to me. It would have been great to have somebody else to play with and like that I was already close with. But it's okay because I made lots of friends. I remember, he walked in with me and they had just cards and pages, binder pages on the wall. And there was tables and tables of people just hanging out playing. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Because, you know, I had still never really seen a card. There was no internet to look it up. I'd only seen a booster pack. Oh, sealed and the book, which was like mostly text and some animation. So, not animation, like graphics, like of like a picture of two people at a table, I think. I can't fully remember this book, but I'm sure someone can find it out there. So I ended up just looking around and I was looking at prices of cards and some people were like, oh, you're new. Well, here, we'll give you some cards. And I remember some guys gave me like some commons. There was like a drudge skeleton and some guy was really nice and gave me like a Sarah Angel and a Demonic Tutor, which was like super cool. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to make obviously a black and white deck because these are two cards I have. And I, I made like some kind of crappy deck. And I just was so in love with it because there were so many possibilities that it ended up being to where like every day, I think it was it was after school, I would have my mom take me there and I would just stay for hours talking to people, playing casually with whatever cards I had. There was no booster drafting yet. And I thought it was just amazing. You know, it was like, wow, look at this. There's so many possibilities. And then shortly thereafter, I believe Ice Age was going to be coming out. It was like a new thing. Ice Age is coming out. You know, I'd been going every day for a year, just messing around. Oh, I, I skipped some parts. Uh, my first deck, I think I really wanted to compete, but everybody had Moxes and Lotuses. And I didn't have any of that. But I saw that like a zoo deck with curd apes and tigers could compete. So that was my first like, you know, it was cheap. It was like a budget deck back then. Get you four tigers, four curd apes, uh, some Urnum gins and lightning bolts. And there you go. So that was my first deck. I never really had a lot of success against the guys with the power playing things like the deck and, you know, all these crazy combos and things. But I had fun. And that's all that really mattered to me. I mean, I wanted to compete, but didn't really fully know how, you know, there wasn't all the resources we have now. I just played, you know, and it was just what it was. It was a fun game. But then when Ice Age came out, they started to have tournaments around, you know, my local area, like more serious tournaments. And I think we had, I think the Pro Tour, God, my, my timeline is so off because I don't remember was the Pro Tour before. I think it was Pro Tour 1. I remember you had to call in and play four of every card, but I remember I didn't care about that. I didn't want to call in. A lot of my friends did, and a few went, but I was like, yeah, I don't really care about that. I just, I just want to play it here. And it could have been a confidence issue. I could have felt maybe I wasn't ready for that. But at some point, something clicked, and I think it was when Mirage was coming out and they started having Pro Tour qualifiers. I think it was my friends coming back from Pro Tours telling me how cool it was. And for the there's a Pro Tour that was going to be in Dallas, the fourth one, I think, or the fifth one. And that's when I really started like kicking it into overdrive and playing competitively and pretty much all the time. That is incredible. You just, I mean, this, <laughs> this origin story of how you found magic, you went out looking for it. And it's hilarious to me that you found this rule book and you were just reading this rule. Like, I have no idea what the cards even look like. And here I am learning about these rules. I remember I would just sit in my bed, reading it again over and over, familiarizing myself with it and just visualizing these because it was like from the the rule book would tell it's like a story. It was like two people playing, or it would tell you like scenarios, but it would use it. God, I gotta find it. But I remember I just would just visualize this happening. I was like, man, I really want to play this game. This sounds like a game like what I've been looking for. Do you feel like your early understanding of the rules helped you in this competitive mindset? 
Um, I, yes and no. I mean, I think I would have been like, that's the kind of person I am. And had I shown up and someone taught me, I would have went home and devoured a rule book to make sure I had a clear understanding of it. So that would have happened naturally. I think it just it helped. I'm so obsessive with things that it made me really want to find this game and how to play it and where to get it. And like, you know, there was no, okay, just go on the internet or search a database and find out stores. Because there, a there was one place, and I'm lucky it was even around. And b you had I had to use the phone book and just call random places, and most of them had no idea what I was talking about. Like, what are you even saying? Or they were like, "Oh, we have magic," and I was like, "No, the card game." And they're like, "Yeah, we have cards," but they meant they have like a magic set with cards and tricks, you know, not Magic the Gathering. So it was it was a struggle, but I was determined. And I think also I'm kind of stubborn. So I went through that much effort to find it. There's no way I wasn't going to say, you know what? I'm not going to play this game. <laughs> I went through that much effort. I'm going to play this game. And it just so happened to be a great game. And it was exactly what I was looking for. Something that was always changing that wasn't just like, you know, very almost solved or boring. Like I played a lot of Boggle and Scrabble with my mom. And those are fun games. But it, like at the end of the day, it's the same thing over and over and over again. And it kind of got boring. So you started playing Magic ever since you were 13. Did you ever take a break in the middle? Uh, because obviously, you know, you are a very talented poker player as well. Did you ever take a break in Magic or you just played Magic throughout your entire life? So that's the thing. I've never taken an actual real break. I mean, there was times where I didn't play as much as I wanted to because I just had other things going on in life. Like when I went away for my junior and senior year in like 96, 97, I went to a uh, like a school that you lived at. So between like 94 and 96, I played a lot, but not competitively. And then I had stopped somewhere. I would say I stopped right around maybe, uh, God, did I ever stop? I don't think I actually, maybe I stopped for like a few months. But when I got to that school, I found some other players that were playing and I kept playing. Um, let's see. I played when I was at Princeton because I went to neutral ground a lot and played with Finkel at Rutgers and those guys. I played when I left Princeton. Yeah, I don't think I ever really quit. I had, I think the closest I came to quitting, which we're skipping ahead a little bit, was I got second place in the World Series of Poker main event in 2004. And at that point, I was heavily into magic still. But right afterwards, I had just won a lot of money and got a lot of fame in another area. And there was a lot of requirements from sponsors to go to things. And I was dedicating myself heavily into poker because it was new to me, newish, newer than magic. The money was great. It was a lot of opportunity. And I was putting poker as a priority and I went to less and less pro tours. I always kept up with magic. I would say, I think that was around when Kamigawa came out. And that's the block I'm least familiar with. If you look at the, uh, like a list of sets, that's the kind of gap for me. I'm trying to think because I wasn't super into it, but I think I got right back into it. I think Time Spiral maybe was, was right after. See, I'm going to look it up here because now I'm just curious as to what the order was. Yeah. So, yeah, Kamigawa was in 2004. Yeah, that's perfect because I got second in the World Series of Poker in uh, summer of 20, 2004. Fifth Dawn came out right around then and I was still heavily playing. Kamigawa block was 2005 and that's when I was so into poker that I didn't really I think that was the first pre-release I'd ever really missed was Kamigawa block pre-releases and it's the this the magic sets I don't have them the most familiarity with and Ravnica block I would say the same I, I've, I've since caught up with it because Ravnica block had a lot of staples for constructed that stayed in formats forever Kamigawa block wasn't a very strong set 
2005 and six, which was Ravnica. I didn't play very much. Time spirals where I really came back because a lot of poker players in Vegas started playing and time spiral was full of nostalgia, which obviously I love because I have a lot of history of magic. So I would say that period between was when I didn't play as much. I still believe I played a few pro tours in there because I got some special invites for being who I was, which was cool of Watsy. But uh, that's the closest I came to quitting. And I still even then didn't quit. I just didn't play as much. Like now I can tell you, you know, I know everything about everything in Magic, every card coming out, every card that exists. I've played them, I draft, you know, and I have ever since then. There's no time and I've taken a, a break of any size. There are a lot of Magic players who also draw parallels from poker and a lot of Magic players are also professional and competent poker players. How did you get into poker? You know, that's that's a good question. And the answer is Magic. At one of the pro tours, I know it was in Los Angeles because I remember vividly it was at the Queen Mary, which is where they used to always be in L.A. Um, I believe it had to be in 97 at Queen on the Queen Mary because I was already playing poker in 98 or it could have been. 90, actually, it was in 98 because I think the pro tour was in February. I remember Queen Mary was always early in the year and I started playing poker middle of 98. So I was at pro tour Los Angeles in 1998 you know, usually after the day was complete or Saturday when everybody was eliminated except for the eight in the top eight, there was a, uh, we called them money drafts. There was a money draft circuit in a sense. There was a group of guys that would get together and we would do three on three booster drafts for like 20 bucks and the cards. And this was something that happened at all the pro tours. And it was my favorite part. And most, most of the old pros, I know it was our favorite thing because it was, it was mostly just the, the socializing, you know, it was like all of us in a room, drafting, hanging out, making fun of each other, just coursing around, having a great time. Well, one day after the tournament, I walked by and the guys who usually money draft were at a table, a round table. Um, I remember Nate Clark was there. He's an old pro. I remember Brock Parker was there, I think. I'm trying to think of the uh, Jason Opalka, some other guys, some old magic players, and they were all playing cards, but it wasn't magic cards. They were playing cards. And as I had said in the beginning, my mom was a big card player growing up, loved Vegas Gamble. She actually hosted a card game at her house on some Saturdays and I would help like organize or even deal or play her hands when she was in the, in the bathroom or making food. It wasn't poker. It was a different card game called Tonk. Um, but I had some experience with cards. When I saw the players sitting around a table with chips, not potato chips, but poker chips and cards. And they look like they were having a good time. I said, what are you guys playing? And these are all my friends. I wanted to draft. And like, we're playing Texas Hold'em. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I'm from Texas and I've never heard of this. <laughs> They're like, well, we can teach you, but it's a $5 entry fee and you sit down and we'll teach you. And I think they're thinking in my in their eyes, they're like, you know, we'll take this guy's five bucks. He'll sit down. We'll, quote, teach him, teach him the hard way by beating it, you know, beating his $5 out of him. So I said, sure, here's my five bucks. They gave me some chips. I said, so how does it work? And they gave me the rules. And I said, okay, this is cool. And we started playing. And there's, you know, a lot of random details in there. I don't, I think there were some re-entries and some people would get knocked out and some new people would join. But all I know is many hours later, something like 12 to 13 hours later, there are two people left with all of the chips. There's myself, the newcomer, and there's Matt Place, who at the time is a pro tour champion right now. He's a, he's a noted game designer. I think he, he was with Blizzard. I don't think he's with them anymore. 
he was he's one of the smartest gamers I've ever interacted with or had at the time. You know, I haven't kept too much in touch with him. I'm still Facebook friends with him. And his brother, Dan Burdick, is uh, well known in magic and on the play design team. But Matt Place was also sort of a hero to me at the time. He was a, an icon. You know, he was a magic pro tour champion. He was he was uh, for his stunning defeat of Stephen Omoni Schwartz, I think, in uh, Pro Tour Mines in Germany, where he made a cool play with Corpse Dance and a Crater Hellion or some kind of, not Crater Hellion, some kind of Hellion that did like damage when it died. And then he Corpse Danced it and attacked and sacked it again to do like 15 damage out of nowhere. There's some crazy play. But anyways, it came down to me and Matt Place. And Matt was very strategic, very smart, you know, and he had played poker before. He knew what he was doing and he was facing me, a newcomer who had no idea how to play poker. Um, I was a pretty smart kid, but I don't think they knew it. You know, I mean, Princeton educated, all A's, national merit scholar, all that. You know, I was, I figured things out, but I think they thought I was just this kid, especially because I didn't have that great of magic results. I just qualified and never did well at the Pro Tour at the time. So it's like a David and Goliath situation. And I remember I was tired. I was exhausted. And I think we were playing for like a few hundred bucks now from the whole prize pool of everybody that had played. And I said, hey, man, how about we just, split this this money up and go to bed or go draft or do anything you know I'm, i've played enough poker that I'm, I'm tired of this and matt being the the wise also value seeking person that he was at the time says no why would i split with you and i can just beat you and get all the money and i'm like well because we save time and there's no guarantee you beat me he's like bro i've played lots of poker you don't even know what you're doing i'm not just going to give you half the money like no i'm sorry and i was like well okay, I really want to sleep. But if that's how it's got to be, that's how it's got to be. And I remember I figured out that he was playing. Now, this, I don't want to go too deep into poker strategy, but he was playing too tight in a sense. He was being too conservative. And I, I noticed that in my first time playing and that I could combat this strategy by being overly aggressive. And I just started raising every hand without even looking at my cards. And I would even make sure he could, he knew that, but he couldn't get himself to loosen up in a sense. And I remember Truck Bowie and Brian Hacker were sitting next to him and they were laughing and laughing and thought it was the funniest thing ever that he was getting ran over by this novice that I was just running him over and he didn't know how to adjust. And sure enough, a few hours later, I had all the chips and all the money and all the glory and a new hobby. I said, this is fantastic. I love poker. And at the time, I probably thought, I love this better than magic because I just got my face kicked in at a pro tour. And I went home and I went back to my local weekly magic meeting at the Texas Guild Mages, which is uh, helmed by Jeff Zandi. They still run. It's a group of guys that kind of one of the first magic teams. We practiced together. We played together. I was one of the first eight founding team members. And now I think back in Texas, there's 36 of them uh, on the roster of, of people who've been a Guild Mage. And that's a big reason why I got competitive and stayed relevant in Magic, I think, was Jeff Sandy. But I um, went back to the game, and we were playing my weekly draft every Tuesday night at Jeff's house. And I said to the guys, man, I discovered this new game. I'm not trying to get you guys to switch, but I loved it, and I really want to play some more. I want to play poker. Do you guys have any interest in a poker game? And all of them were like, no. we, you know, They were adults. I was still 16, I think, at the time, or 17 at the time. And they were a little older, and they were like, no, we don't really want to gamble. But one of the guys there, his name was Min Nguyen, and he's a really good guy and was just an amazing person, magic player, good player. Min says, you want to play Hold'em? I got a spot for you. I know about an underground game here in Dallas. Because at the time, and even still, there's no casinos in Dallas. There's nowhere legal to play poker. 
But there's poker games. You know, if you want to play poker, people play poker games. Men said, I got a game for you. He gave me the address. He said, go down there. Tell him I sent you. And I was like, yeah, but I'm I'm not old enough. He goes, buddy, it's not a casino. It's, it's not even legal. They don't care how old you are. As long as you have money, you can play. That's so crazy. So I took the address. I remember I got 400 bucks together and I drove down to this place. It was a pretty non-descript. It was called the Redmond's Lodge, which to fast forward a little bit, uh, Doyle Brunson, I'm sure you were familiar with the name. If you know anything about poker, he's sort of the godfather of poker. He's uh, a legend, Hall of Famer, two-time champion, one of the most famous poker players in the world and someone I consider a friend here in Vegas. Doyle knows I kind of cut my chops at the Redmond's Lounge. And he's like, man, that's a famous place. He goes, whenever I would kind of roll through Texas, we always played there. And that's one of the only places I never won at. So anyways, I stroll up to the Redmond's Lodge. It's like a men's lodge it's in an office building. There's no signage, cars, and it's kind of strange looking place. And I remember I went to the address and I rang the bell and a buzzer. And I hear someone's voice. May we help you? from an intercom. And I guess they have a camera they could see me. And I was like, uh, hi, um, I'm here to play poker. Uh, I was sent by a gentleman by the name of Men. And they're like, Men who? I'm like, Men when? They're like, oh, one second. I wait. And they also have to be careful too because they don't want to get robbed. You know, there's money in there and they don't want people to come in and, and take everyone's money. So they, a security guard comes out, looks me up and down, asks me some information and says, come on in. And I walk in and there was tables and people and it was so diverse. It was all, it, it was eerily familiar to like being at a magic shop. There's just <laughs> people sitting around it playing and there's chip noise and there is TVs on with sports. And it was like a little club and they were so friendly, like, Hey, how are you? And obviously I get it. They're probably nice people too, but you want to be friendly to your new players because they probably don't know what they're doing and you want them to come back and continue to lose money. So I sat down with some guys in a game and I said, I got 400 bucks and they handed me some chips. And they had various stakes, small and medium, you know, different buy-ins. I sat at the cheapest intro game. I was with a bunch of, you know, blue-collar people, you know, people with everyday jobs. No, no, no professionals, it seemed. And, and as I found out, they weren't. And we just started playing. And it was for money. And you could cash out and leave whenever you wanted. It was basically like a little casino table game, but it was a poker game. And I did extremely well that first day. First time in there, I wanted quite a bit of money. I was like, wow, this is pretty easy. And next thing you know, I was going there all the time. And here we are to this day. I'm a professional poker player. I mean, I, I continued down the path of poker. And I don't want to turn this interview into my poker origin story because you basically got that. And the, the details between there and when I got second or I just got into World Series in the World Series is basically I just got really heavily invested in it, practiced and played and was a kind of a natural talent at it and started playing with uh, Neil Reeves, who is another magic player who's very well known in the pro tour level who had moved to Dallas. We were playing magic together, but we would also go to the, the poker lodge and play poker together for our source of income and uh, continue to play both games up until 2004 when I got second in the main event. And then we've already talked about how I took a sort of break from magic, but not a real break, just didn't play as heavily. But now I'm kind of back into it, you know, full throttle. What a wonderful progression as, uh, you know, you grew up as a kid who was uh, very hungry and very curious about all the things around you. And you saw a deep and rich and strategic game and you just fell in love with it immediately. And also this is like this great persistence and great love of knowledge that you have. Ever since that you find something that you're really interested in, you go really deep, you go really hard in those things. And uh, it's also 
also very interesting to me that you've always been very warm to communities and you've always, you've never shied away from people. You've always just been like, hey, people want to teach me something. People want to uh, compete with me and kind of give me a little bit of pushback and really test me. I'm totally okay with that. And you were really able to kind of like bump elbows and kind of jive in that space. You no, know, I, I realized that a big part of what makes games successful is the community surrounding that game. I mean, the Magic community is my favorite ever. And I think it's the most diverse, accepting community I've ever been a part of. I realized that Magic has so many things to offer for different people. Not everyone is there to be competitive and win a tournament. Some people like to just socialize and hang out. Some people like to create wild combos, whether they succeed or not. When it does, it's fun. Some people like to cosplay. Some people just like to collect. I mean, there's so many different things you can do with Magic. And I, that's my favorite part about it. I've had some, a few friends in Vegas come with me to see GP Vegas because it's such a spectacle. And they're like, you know, this is so crazy how huge it is. I'm like, yeah, and the best part about it is no matter what you like about Magic, you can find it here. And everyone is so accepting and friendly. You know, and my friends will be like, well, look, there's someone dressed up as a giant character. Is that required or is that what everyone does? I'm like, look, that's not for me. I don't dress up. I think it's pretty damn cool to see the cosplayers in their costumes. And that's what's cool about it. It's that everybody can do what they want to do and be accepted. You know, there's there's blacks, there's whites, there's Asians, Hispanics, there's every race. There's not a lot of every race. I wish there was more. But I mean, no one's ever said a word to me about being different. You know, there's different sexualities, different religions. It's just such a diverse community. And I think the thing that everyone's just there to play a game or have fun and to be together. So I love the magic community and how open it is. Obviously, there's some issues with it. It's not perfect. You know, there's some issues with women and it needs to get better in that aspect, as do most gaming communities. And I think that's something that I, I want to do my part to help in, specifically because I have a daughter. But compared to, you know, a lot of other gaming and a lot of other little communities, even the poker one, it's a, it's it's the best I've seen. Um, you need poker has a great community. You know, everybody talks about what's going on in the tournaments and, and votes on different like not votes, but puts their voice out there on changes that should be made and, and tournament organizers listen. So I love that the hobbies or things I'm into have communities and personalities and, and, and everyone's pretty helpful in getting someone getting started if, as long as you, you seek it and you, and you search for it. You've got a really strong optimism about uh, the communities that you join. And I also feel that you've also, um, you know, clearly you're very talented, you're very smart, and you just like are, you don't shy away. I really notice this a lot about um, a lot of high achievers is that like when they when they see a challenge and they see adversity, they don't necessarily shy away from it. They really lean into it. And that, uh, I guess that the pursuit and that chase of achievement really drives them and uh, motivates them even more. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely like achievement, but I also realize, you know, in life, I've learned that to get what you want, you got to go for it, man. You can't just sit back and let it come to you. And as I get older, I still I, I struggle with that. It's something that I think everyone struggles with is you have to not get complacent or stagnant. You have to always be pursuing whatever it is you want, whether it's something small or something large, or if you want to you know, whatever it is you want to do, it's up to you to be active and go for it. Now, obviously, everybody doesn't always have the means or the abilities or the talents or the opportunity for sure. But you got to do the best of your ability, the best of your opportunity. You got to make the best of what you can and see what that can bring you if you want something. You know, like I think uh, I've been kind of watching all this Hall of Fame discussion and seeing success. And it's it's made me and I, I have never since I've kind of refocused on magic after poker, I would say, in 06, 07. I've never taken it fully seriously. I just enjoy it. I'm competitive, but it's more of a hobby. It's a casual hobby. 
you know, I go to the pro tours. I don't test as much because, you know, it's not what I want to do with my time. But after seeing all this recently, I've kind of got the fire in me. I had a really good season last year, especially for not giving it my all, for giving it, I would say, a half-assed measure. I still had a pretty good season. I'm close to gold. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to see if this next season, if I really dedicate myself to it, I really play standard. I test weeks in advance. What can happen? So, you know, and I, I'm going to go for bigger achievement. So who knows what what will come of that. It's so interesting to hear you talk about really going for it. And then, you know, it's very clear in your voice that there's a passion. And I want to talk to you a little bit about MasterChef, because aside from playing magic and being really good with numbers and being really good at poker, cooking, chefery, (laughs) and also cooking with the best chefs on earth, impressing them and making it to the finals of season seven. That's just an incredible process. How did you even think to yourself that you wanted to be on MasterChef? In 2013, the most I could make was eggs. That's, that's what I knew about cooking. And somewhere around 2014, I always loved eating. I always loved fine dining and nice restaurants. And I'm also a very curious person. So I, end, I watch a lot of just random YouTube videos or, or just random things. I just like it. And I would find myself watching all these cooking videos, even though I didn't cook. And I would always, in my head, be cooking along with them. And then one day, I decided I wanted to make this pasta dish that I was craving that uh, I didn't feel like going to a restaurant for. It was a pappardelle with a lamb ragu. And I looked up some recipes and I was just reading it. And I was like, you know what? I bet I could make this. Seems like it would be fun. It'd be a lot cheaper than going to the restaurant I like to eat it at and paying like $40 for one bowl of it. I could make a big pot of it. I'm going to try this. So I went and found a butcher shop, got the right meat mixture for the ragu, the lamb. I I bought all the ingredients, studied over the uh, recipe a hundred times, and I made this dish. And it was pretty damn tasty. My wife at the time liked it. Efro came over because he lived kind of close. He liked it. All my friends. And it was cool seeing that I created something from some basic ingredients that are pretty plain on their own. But when you combine them, they make this awesome thing. It's almost like making a deck. And I got to make everyone happy. There was no loser. When you win a game of Magic or you win at poker, someone else has to lose, which being competitive, that's just the nature of the beast. But at the same time, I don't like necessarily only making people lose. I needed an outlet where I also make people happy. And when I made food and everyone ate, if they liked it, they smiled and it made them happy. If they didn't like it, oh, well, we'll make something else. It wasn't like they lost. They just, but actually no one ever didn't like, no one ever disliked anything at that point. So I kind of got into just cooking as a hobby, just at home, making fun dishes, watching YouTube videos, trying to make things. But I was never serious about it. I wouldn't have considered myself talented or even a chef. All I was doing in my eyes was just following instructions. You know, to me at the time, Cooking was like formulaic. You read the recipe. I wasn't adding my own stuff to it. I was just following a recipe to a T and it worked out if the recipe was well written. And people would be like, well, I can never do that. I'm like, what do you mean? You just do what the recipe says. But I do get it. A lot of the things people just aren't good at, you know, doing, even though it's just following directions. I get it. Not for everyone. I'd been doing that for about a year and a half. And I was someone reached, I was posting some videos or pictures on my Instagram of some of the stuff I was making. I think I actually signed up for Blue Apron, which was like a food delivery service where they send you ingredients, which made it even easier because it was ingredients for two. I didn't have to grocery shop. I didn't have to break down things and, you know, have extra food left over. And they ha- I didn't have to come up with a menu. It came up with a recipe. So I started making some Blue Apron dishes and I was posting pictures on social media and people would like them and be like, oh, wow, that's a pretty good looking dish, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, late 
2015, I think it was, because yeah, I filmed in 2016. 2015, I got a, a woman who I'd worked with, a producer, on a, a show called The King of Vegas for Spike TV back in 2005. It was like a gambling TV show I did. Where I also got to the finals there. I seem to have this thing where I just get to the finals a lot and then just win. <laughs> so I've done that major poker tournaments, the World Series of Poker main event. I was second. King of Vegas, I was the first finalist, to, you know, out. Uh, MasterChef, as you said, I was a finalist. World Poker Tour, I was a finalist against Daniel Negrano, although I finally did win one in 2010. But anyways, she messages me and she says, hey, I'm a producer on this cooking show and uh, we have auditions coming to Las Vegas and I think you should audition, you know, because she was a social media friend. So she had seen that I'd been cooking. She goes, I've seen some of your stuff and it looks like you'd be great for our show. You have personality, you have a story, you enjoy cooking and you're an amateur. And I was like, well, what show is that? And she said, it's MasterChef. Are you familiar with it? And at the time I wasn't. I said, no. Um, when's the audition? She says, well, it's in four days. And I said, well, I don't know about this. What do I need to do? She's like, make one of a signature dish, bring it on down to the audition and meet with the judges, present your dish. They'll ask you some questions and you'll be on your way. And if they like you, you know, they'll call you back for future interviews. And I was like, let me think about this because I don't really know if I'm ready to cook competitively. I just follow recipes, you know. She goes, trust me, I think you'll love it. So I went and watched an episode and I saw Gordon freaking out and being very kind of aggressive. And I was terrified. I was like, yeah, this is not <laughs> but my daughter was watching with me and she says, what are you watching, dad? And I said, um, it's a cooking show. She's why? She's like, I've watched MasterChef Junior. I like it. I said, oh, a woman asked me to audition. Do you know what that means? And she's like, yeah, and I, I said, but I, she's like, are you going to do it? I was like, no, nah, I don't think so. It's not for me. She's like, why not? I think you could. I love your food. I think you're a great cook. I bet she would win. And I'm, at this stage, I'm, I'm now faced with my child, who I'm her hero, telling me that she thinks I could do it and she wants me to try. And I want to be a good role model. And what kind of role model am I if I'm like, well, I don't believe in myself and I'm not going to try? You know, that's I can't do that. So now I'm kind of pushed into a corner by a four year old at the time. Now I have to audition for this show to prove to her that, you know what? Believe in yourself. Try things. You never know what will happen. And I expected to do awful. But I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. So I uh, went on down to the audition. I remember uh, Matt Sperling, I think, had a bachelor party. I was help hosting the night before. So it made it really tough because I needed to be at the audition at like eight. And I needed to get up and make my dish at six. And they came to Vegas for a bachelor party and wanted to be out all night. And I'm like, oh, man, I had to leave early to practice and go to sleep and wake up and make my dish again. I made a, a spicy shrimp puttanesca sauce with shrimp because I really like making pasta sauces. And I used a lot of kind of strategy to it. I, I brainstormed about what I could make. And I'm like, OK, well, the thing is, you're going to they're going to taste your dish. and It's going to be room temperature because it's not going to be fresh off of a, of a you know, you're going to take it, you're going to make it at home and drive it to an audition and then wait in line. So it's, it's not going to be warm. So what can you make that's good but not warm? And I thought, well, you know what? Pasta. Obviously, pasta tastes better when it's piping hot, but pasta still tastes pretty dang good when it's just room temperature. And I wanted a protein, but chicken, nah. And I was like, steak, steak's good when it's hot, but shrimp, shrimp's really good. Shrimp's good. You could eat a shrimp cocktail. So I made my dish, went down to the audition, waited in line, went into a room with 30 other people. They called you in groups of think 30. They said, okay, you have five minutes to present your dish, lay it out, plate it, and then judges are going to come around and taste. And I remember everyone, most people were like, they had their dish on a paper plate wrapped in foil or in Tupperware. I brought a bag with like my nicest white china, some cutlery and, I, and a white napkin. And I remember I plated my dish because I was auditioning. You know, this is like a job interview. You want to show that you take it seriously. And I couldn't believe 
at how so many people were on this level. I mean, pretty much no one in my group. So I laid out my white plate. I plated my dish nicely. I practiced on plating it. I wiped down the plate, had a cutlery for them to try it. And they uh, they ended up liking it, invited me to the next stage of the interview. And next thing you know, I kept coming back for more and more interviews. And then I get a call in uh, December of that year of uh, 2015. Hey, we need you to come to LA in January. I think it was in January. Yeah, you're coming to LA in January and bringing us stuff in case you're going to be here eight weeks because we're going to decide on a cast. And if you're decided you will be staying, you won't have a phone and you will have to make uh, accommodations at home for your home life because if you make it, you'll be gone for a while. And I said, oh, God, I made it. I guess I'm going to go down and see where this goes. And I expected to go to Los Angeles and probably not even make the initial cut to be on the show or make the or lose in the heads up battle to make it into the top 20. I just didn't think I would do well. And I think once I got there and realized that there was gameplay strategy elements to the show, I was able to use my expertise in that to help me get further in the game that no one else did. Like I realized you don't necessarily need to be the winner each week. You just don't want to be the loser because they eliminate someone. So to do to to make sure that didn't happen, you want to minimize risk. So the things that people go home for mostly is raw food. Well, that cuts out poultry. Anything I can do to avoid making poultry, I'm not going to make it because if your steak's <laughs> raw, raw steak is great. If your pork is a little undercooked, if it's good pork, that's okay too. If your chicken's raw, that ain't good. Seafood, seafood can be raw. People eat sushi. Obviously, I didn't plan on making anything raw, but it's a lot easier. Raw poultry is the death of so many people on cooking shows. So I just avoided poultry whenever possible. I also avoided big risk because someone who has takes a big risk and flops where their dish is just awful, is usually eliminated. Someone whose dish is, okay, this is okay. It's not awful. It's not great. It's okay. Well, you're not going home if it's okay if there's 20 people because somebody's going to have an awful dish. If everybody's dishes were good or okay, yeah, then you might have the worst okay dish. So I realized quickly, don't take a risk that could flop and have an awful dish and don't make anything that could be raw. If you can follow this, you'll go far. So that was my strategy. And it was also to don't make a big target on yourself because there's advantages and disadvantages you can pass out to other players. Don't be cocky because you don't want anybody to to give you a disadvantage thinking that you're good and they they can eliminate you. And people aren't always smart and realize that no matter how much you like someone, if you want to give the disadvantage to the strongest competitor, someone might also just be like, I don't like this guy, even though he sucks. I'm just going to give him a disadvantage when it's like, you know what? That guy's going to be on his way out anyway. So whenever I had the opportunity to sabotage someone, I always made sure sabotage your biggest threat. It doesn't matter how you feel about someone personally because there's only one winner. And that got me that got me through. That got me uh, pretty deep. But then when there was eight left, I realized, you know, now is the time where you got to start taking risks because the chafe has been thinned. The herd has been thinned. And I realized that plating was huge because until this point, no one's plates looked really special. It was all about everyone was trying to make their dishes taste good. But the differentiating factor at this point, I realized, was going to be plating. And I also realized this is a TV show. The viewers can't see taste, but what they can see is a pretty dish. So it's a lot easier for the judges to want to pick a dish that plays well for TV because it looks beautiful. If you have two dishes, one that looks good but tastes okay, and one that tastes great but it's the ugliest dish you've ever seen. <laughs> in TV land, the pretty dish is usually going on because it's a lot easier to market that, to show that, to, to put some glitz and glamour. Look at this dish. 
And you can a judge can lie, not necessarily that they did, but they can exaggerate and say, well, this beautiful dish also tastes beautiful and vice versa. They can say, well, this ugly dish tastes like crap, even though it could be fantastic because viewers at home have no way to double check that. But they sure as hell can say, you know what, that dish doesn't look very great. That dish looks pretty crappy. So I made sure to start finessing my dishes, started using the Mandalay to make really thin ribbons and use my tweezers to place microgreens here and there and really fancify your dishes. And at that stage, all of a sudden, I started placing in the top three. So I, I took less risk recipe-wise, but I made sure to make them beautiful. But it didn't last long. I mean, within a few people, everyone kind of realized that and everyone stepped their game up when they saw the praise I was getting for how beautiful my dishes were. Everyone kind of noticed, well, we better make our dishes look beautiful too. And then it kind of came back to cooking. But I was very fortunate and most of the elimination challenges didn't rely on creativity because that's where I struggled, which is coming up with something. But technique and recreation, imitation, I was very good at. You know, if Gordon showed us a dish and they said, okay, you guys need to recreate this, I can do that. If they said, come up with your best such and such recipe, I'm at a loss. So the mystery boxes I didn't have great success in, but those weren't for elimination. So I just did something safe. The elimination were always, okay, bake a cake or make a sausage or cut the potato. Who makes the best gnocchi and french fries and all these potato challenges? So I made sure I could, my skills are on point. My elimination for the final was cooking pork, which happens to be my specialty. One of the things I cook the most of because I love pork and I'm very good at cooking different types of pork. So it was almost like it was made for me the the challenge to make the finals. And I was able to nail the cook on all my, my pork dishes and made it to the end. So, you know, it was a combination of being a gamer and being competitive and driven that allowed me to get to the finals. I didn't expect it. I look back on it and I say, what an experience for two months to be sequestered. Um, I don't have any regrets. I don't regret that I did it. I probably wouldn't do it again because I didn't like the sequestering. I didn't like how the hours, you know, and how we were kind of treated. We weren't treated the greatest the food options, even though we're on a great cooking show, what we ate off camera for ourselves was pretty bad. And, you know, I just like my freedom. And I didn't have a lot of freedom. And I also was away from my daughter. That being said, I do have aspirations to compete on Survivor. I have forever. Um, I know some people on the staff and I know uh, Boston Rob is a close friend of mine and he's agreed to kind of help push production to at least look at me once my uh, non-compete clause with from Fox to CBS is over. And I, I think Survivor is more my style. Because it's, you know, Master Chef. I like cooking, but it's not my passion. Strategy gaming and social network, things like like uh, social strategy games like Survivor are what I really love. So I'm excited for hopefully having the opportunity one day to go on the show. I mean, it may not happen, but one can dream. It's so fascinating that you're using all these different strategy elements from gaming to really think about the situation that you're in. I, I, when I saw your finale, I was just most impressed of the fact that Gordon Ramsay, Christina Tosi, Wolfgang Puck, and Daniel Balud were saying all these nice things about your food. I mean, these are just like world-renowned chefs and you're just being totally starstruck. It's like, wow, this thing I made on a plate, they liked it. Yeah, no, that was that's one of the coolest feelings ever, especially because uh, I've talked to uh, Wolfgang once after and he says he really felt I should have won, which granted, I'm happy uh, Sean won. I think he was the right right champion for the for, he's the right guy for the, for the job to be the champion and represent the MasterChef brand. It still hurt to lose. And having Wolfgang tell me that he really enjoyed my dishes and I was his pick for the winner really made me feel really good, especially because he's someone whose restaurants I frequent in Vegas. There's one here in Summerlin and I actually might even go there for dinner tonight. So 
having Wolfgang tell me that felt great. Danielle Balud is one of my heroes. Uh, I love Danielle in New York and he loved my dishes had a lot of French inspiration because I have a, I had a mentor here in Vegas at uh, Joel Robuchon. The head chef there was sort of a mentor to me once I made it on the show and helped me a lot. And we're still friends. So my finale dishes had a lot of French influences in, in them. And, uh, specifically my main, my main course and Danielle Ballou being French really enjoyed my, uh, my sauce on my main course. So that made me really feel nice. And not to mention Gordon and Christina who were there for me the whole season. Christina specifically was just so kind and supportive and one of my favorite people in the world. Cause she's also just a straight shooter and she could be tough with you, but it was because she cared. And then there's Gordon who, uh, we've, we've kept in touch when he comes to Vegas. I run into him here and there. We have a lot of mutual friends you know, and a lot of people ask me, oh, was it scary? Is he mean? I'm like, you know, Gordon, when he yells at people, it's it's from love. It's because he cares about you and he's passionate and wants you to succeed. And that's just the way he communicates that to you. Uh, he never he's one of the kindest persons and he would always be there for you. And off camera, if he saw that you were struggling, he was there to pat your back and to give you a pep talk. And sometimes that pep talk would be stern. But all the competitors realize that's just because he's trying to put some fire under your butt. And he really, truly does care about you. And He's also just a wizard. I mean, watching him make these dishes on the fly, it's just so impressive. It's like watching Picasso paint. I mean, it was just incredible. I'd always thought he was just this TV personality that, you know, he's like, you know, like a, like a Guy Fieri. Not necessarily Guy Fieri, maybe a great chef too. But you look at these guys and you wonder, are they really like the great chefs or are they just TV personalities that know how to cook? And after spending the time with Gordon, I can say this guy is an all-time great. He is a legend in the kitchen. In addition to that, he has this personality that makes him such a huge TV star that he is the total package. David, you talked a lot about your daughter throughout this interview, and uh, it's clear that you love your daughter very much. What's it like being a dad? You know, that I would say is the hardest thing to put into words because it is the greatest thing in the world, but it doesn't say it enough. Like before I had a child, people had told me that like, oh, kids are great. And I always thought, well, A, they, maybe they feel like they have to say that because it's their kids. B, because like people are just, maybe it's not that great. Maybe they they don't know the life I get to live every day, not having children that maybe children aren't that great. You know, I always wondered because you, you can't put it into words. Or I was like, oh, it, it's sure it's great, but how great is it? As I say now, I mean, it is literally the best thing that's ever happened to me, not close to experience that bond and connection with someone that I've never felt in my life. It shows you what it's all about, what the purpose of life is, is to be a good parent, a good role model, to spread that love and good values into that person that you helped create. Having a little girl is just so much, it's just, for me, it is like, it defines me, you know, everything I do is for her. Um, I keep her in mind with all my decisions. And specifically, I'm a single dad, you know, I've divorced with my wife and we're on great terms. But my daughter lives with me because her mother is remarried and has a new child and her husband lives in uh, Austin, Texas. So they live in Austin, but she still comes. But I have my, my daughter for the majority of the time, which is tough. A lot of people you know, don't know that about me, that I'm a, a single dad full time with a daughter who is seven now, about to be eight. So she's at that age where she is so curious and learning about stuff. And it's just so awesome to see. Like the other day, she came up to me and was like, I want to learn to play Magic Dad, which I've tried to teach her in the past, but I think she was too young and then she wasn't into it because she wanted to just play with her Barbies and she thought magic is for boys. And I took her to the local game store and it was all guys. And I've been trying to show her, like when I see a girl on stream, hey, come look, come look, there's a girl. You know, I tell her, look, girls do play. And I think seeing Dana Fisher get some some publicity was inspiring to her because she's like, whoa, how old is she? She looks like my age. I'm like, well, she's close. She's eight. 
So now she's like, Dad, I want to learn to play and go to a tournament with you. So I had uh, a friend sent me a bunch of product for intro purposes, and I'm going to teach her. And my mother just moved to Vegas, teach them both how to play because my mom's always wanted to know. And I've never wanted to bring my mom in just because it's my space. And I kind of like I don't want to have to tag along or take my mom. Or, but it's great. If my daughter is just learning because then my grandma, my mother, her grandmother and her are such they're so close they can play together and she has someone, they have someone on their own level as they get better. But being a dad is, is so much more than just that. I mean, just like I say, it made me a better person. I, I, I just, I have someone to I have a purpose, which I don't really think I truly had before I had a child, you know, that's so fascinating. And you even uh, had some magic, the gathering inspiration in naming your daughter. Yeah, that's a, a funny story. I kind of duped my, uh, her mother to get the name when we knew we were having a girl and we we're thinking of names. I knew immediately I wanted to name her Liliana. She was the, for me, I think she's a, a total badass character. As far as the cards go, if you looked at the original Planeswalkers, uh, not the original because the five mana Liliana wasn't that great, but then three mana Liliana the Veil came out, was super sweet. Chandra never really shined up until now, up until the new four mana one in standard. So Liliana to me was the ultimate female Planeswalker. She was a total badass. And the character was great, everything about it. So I knew that I wanted the name. But naming your child, as people who have children will know, sometimes can be tough when two parents both want that honor. You know, the mom wants to name it one thing, the dad wants to name the child the other, and you're both kind of, someone has to give, you know, someone has to compromise. So we, I didn't immediately suggest Liliana because I knew her immediate pushback would be my baby's mom at the time would be, no, 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 no. I want to pick and I'm going to pick something different. So I had to figure out a way to get her to suggest Liliana. And I couldn't let her know it was about magic because she supported me playing magic. But like a lot of spouses or significant others, she was kind of annoyed with it because of how much time I spent on it. And that was time I wasn't spending with her. So she was like, we're not naming our child anything to do with magic or that game. And I was so I didn't want to immediately say, hey, how about we name her Liliana? And it's a magic card because that would get shot down. I'd have no chance. So I had to play this strategically. So we both suggested names over the course of a few weeks and we both shot down whatever she said I shot down, whatever I said she shot down. We didn't want to no, we couldn't come to an agreement. And eventually one day she came to the name Lola. And I said, uh, I don't know about Lola. I'm like Lola, I like I like the sound of it, but I don't like Lola. It's too informal. I'm like, I want like a formal name that you can shorten. And where I was going with this was I was leading her to Liliana and Lily. So she's like, and this was like a month or so, six weeks of like working on rejecting names to get to this point. And then when she saw that there was a crack and I was considering Lola, she was like, come on, let's do Lola. Let's do, she would push, push, push. And she got kind of obsessed. And I was like, listen, I'm willing to compromise. I don't like Lola. It's missing something. I'm like, I want a name so it can be like, I'm like, can you imagine if she's a judge? It's like the honorable judge Lola. I'm like, she needs like a, like a full name, like something regal, like something that's like, you know, like you don't call people, you don't call me Dave. You call me David if you're like, and then Dave is a nickname or a short version, something like that. And finally, she was like, how about Lily? And I was like, oh, I don't know. She's like, it could be Lillian. And I'm like, Lillian? I'm like, well, I kind of like it. I like Liliana. Sounds a little better. And it's kind of like Lola. And I was like, but I don't know about Lily. I'm like, that's kind of weird. Even though in my, in my head, I'm thinking, got her. This is what I want. <laughs> I, knew I was eager and jumped on it. She's going to be like, ah, oh, never mind. I had to act like I was close so that she would push for it. She's like, come on, Liliana. Let's do it. That's a great name. And I'm like, I don't know. 
And I, I, I played this game of chicken because it's scary because, you know, I could resist and then she could just come back with like a new name. You know, OK, forget it. I've come up with another name. But I kept back. I'm like, you know, Liliana's growing on me. I'm like, let's see what people think. And of course, everyone, no matter what name you say, oh, that's a great name. So I'm just like, yeah, OK, I, no, I'm not going to commit yet. I want to keep the door open because I'm not so sure. And she's like, no, no, it has to be Liliana. And then finally, I'm like, OK, OK, you can have the first name Liliana if I can come up with her middle name. And she was like, OK, perfect. And then later on, after our daughter was born, Ephraim got Therese Nielsen to create a, a Liliana print for her, like a, like a little print for her wall. And Yvette's like, what is this? I'm like, oh, there's a magic card named Liliana. That's really freaking cool. And she's like, and how long has that been around? I'm like, well, Liliana's been in magic for a while. And she's like, What? She's like, did you, did you? And I'm like, oh, you know, I mean, I didn't think about it, but that's pretty damn cool. <laughs> so, I mean, my ex-wife loves our daughter's name. Everyone loves it. My daughter loves her name. So I don't think she has, I don't think my ex-wife is upset with me that she got kind of manipulated into picking the name Liliana. I sort of just waited till she came to that conclusion. Ultimately, she decided on the name and I agreed. That is so incredible. I cannot believe you have such a way. Look, my intro was so spot on competitive. You have gamified almost every aspect of your life. You are the consummate min-maxer. Yeah, I mean, I try not to be. And that's one of the things I'm thankful for having a parent. I'm having a daughter and being a parent is that it's softened me up in that area aspect. And I've realized not everything's about that. And sometimes you just have to enjoy moments and take things as they are. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not totally. about maximizing every situation. And, and I've, I've, having a daughter has definitely taught me that. I love that. Okay, everyone, we're going to have more from David coming up. But first, we're going to take a quick break from our sponsors. David, we have a special Patreon supporters gift. Could you tell us what it is? Yeah, I'm going to be signing some copies of Liliana Spectre. Uh, we chose this card. Uh, my daughter's name is Liliana. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know she's a very big part of my life, and as is magic. And she was actually named uh, after Liliana the Planeswalker. So I'm going to be signing some copies of Liliana Spectres as a, a Patreon gift for you guys. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. I will be sending you a whole bunch of copies of those. You'll be signing them and then we'll be giving them away to Patreon. So if you want to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Thanks so much, David. No problem. David has signed copies of Liliana Spectre for Patreon supporters. It's a reminder of his love for magic and his daughter, Liliana. You can get one by supporting the show at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Supplies are limited and I'm only giving them to current supporters and new ones that sign up during October and November. Big thanks to all of my Patreon supporters past, present, and future who always get pocket aces when going all in. Again, that's patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Thanks for your support. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. In my experiences ordering things online, I always hope everything goes well. Like, will I get my package quickly? Will my order be correct? With so many business interactions being digitized and becoming less personal, we care more about receiving great customer service. And you're probably wondering, how do I find an online store that embodies all the qualities that we're looking for these days? I decided to read what people were saying online about Card Kingdom. Lost Jedi 2003 says, Card Kingdom, hey, I just got my orders. Love, love the speed and efficiency from you guys. Thank 
thank you very much. Twitter user Gold Convoy got a robot soldier token hand-drawn and included in their order. Huge thank you to Card Kingdom for the custom token. I asked for a mechanical robot soldier token and it's beyond what I could have imagined. Kitoshi got a fully colored rainbow chameleon token drawn. Brock Bro says, Thank you, Card Kingdom. Ordered Friday, received Monday. Fast shipping is no lie. Love the pull tab tape job on the case. 39 cards. Rich Baranek says, At Command Cast, you were right. Card Kingdom ships fast. Wasn't expecting to have this for another week or two. Also, no one mentioned the awesome care they take in packaging the cards. Even professional football player Cassius Marsh gets his hard-to-find foils from Card Kingdom. It seems the people have spoken. From fast shipping logistics to great customer service, card selection, and also the care their fulfillment takes when packaging each order, Card Kingdom goes above and beyond. I even purchase all of my Patreon supporters' gifts from Card Kingdom. So if you're looking to purchase Magic the Gathering singles and sealed products online, Card Kingdom has been trusted by Magic players around the world. You can also show support for Kitchen Table Magic when you use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com KTM. Again, that's cardkingdom.com KTM. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Paragon City Games. I've been talking about Paragon City Games for some time now, and recently I've been invited to film three vlogs at their game store for their Heroes League Invitational series. It's a local tournament where the winners compete at a year-end Invitational. The player community there is wonderful, competitive, and fun. They have friendly staff that greet every single person that walks through the door. The store itself is huge, open, clean, bright, airy. There's beverages, snacks, clean restrooms, a fully loaded feature match area, and a high-tech streaming setup. The entire store is filled with huge open tables, enough to fit over 100 players. I played at an FNM there once, and there were four different formats going at the same time. They also have a huge selection of board games, magic singles, supplies, tokens, handcrafted wooden deck boxes, and artisanal diehard metal dice. If you want to see the vlogs I made for Paragon City Games, just go to facebook.com slash paragoncitygames and click on videos. I made three vlogs, one for each of their standard, modern, and legacy events. Paragon City Games has a commitment to legacy, and they're streaming legacy daily at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. If you're ever in Draper, Utah, go check them out. And if you love legacy, watch their Twitch stream, again, at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. They're a wonderful group of people, and I'm so grateful to have them as friends. Okay, and we are back. David, I have some rapid-fire questions for you. Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Okay, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what's your favorite color and why? My favorite color is blue. Why? I would say it's because blue decks were the first decks I had success with uh, on the competitive level when I started playing PTQs and local store tournaments that had like prizes, like we had a $100 weekly store tournament. I made a, a blue deck with Mahalodi Gins and Counter Spells. And then I had a deck that uh, played a card called Flood, and I just had a lot of success with blue decks early in my uh, Flooded Shoreline, I think it was. It was like Return Islands to Bounce a Creature or something like that. Anyways, a lot of blue decks are what I, I had my first success with, so I have uh, fond memories of blue. And I like to draw cards, and blue does that the best. That's very cool. And if you could pair blue with another color, what would you pair it with? That's tough. Uh, I, it's really tough. I don't, I mean, I'm blue green. I love Simic and I had success at the world championships playing blue green in both 
formats in 2001. I really love Is It? Is It's a lot of fun. Demir is also one of my favorites to draft. But then Blue White Control is is one of my favorite decks, and you know that I've played a lot in the past too. So that's why I think I like Blue because it pairs with them all well. I think if I had to pick one, I would probably pick White because Blue White is just sweet. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, you are a true Blue Mage at heart because <laughs> you love putting Blue in everything. <laughs> David, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Uh, I would get rid of the reserve list if I could change one thing about Magic the Gathering. I, as an investor and holder of a lot of the older cards, I still feel that way. I don't feel the value would be destroyed permanently. And I think also some of the things like my dual lands I have value in, yes, those would go down, but I would sacrifice the thousands of dollars in value to make dual lands more accessible for more players so that formats like Vintage and Legacy could thrive. Because I feel ultimately those formats will die one day if, and if you can't buy lands without spending 20 grand. And I'm totally fine with losing the value in my white border dual lands. And as far as my black border cards, I know I don't think those would lose much value. I think they'd actually go up because I think more people would want to play those formats and you would desire the the beta versions would still be collectible. And my, my case study here is if you look at Birds of Paradise, right? Beta and Alpha Birds of Paradise are in the thousands of dollars each. But there's also Birds of Paradise you can buy that are like bulk for a buck or two. So it shows that when you reprint cards in later editions that are white bordered, it doesn't really affect the collectible 93, 94 versions because those are still still relics. Those are still pieces of history. They're still scarce. And I think you could abolish the reserve list as long as Wizards of the Coast was not negligent in what they did with that power and just printing black bordered moxes all day and giving them away in packs. If they were judicious about how they wanted to do it, mainly for the dual land case, I think it would be great for the health of the eternal formats. I think it's fascinating hearing your perspective. Like you said, you are also a collector and investor. And on top of that, you would be for having the reserve list abolished. That's really fascinating to me. And it reminds me a lot of, um, I guess, even like vintage car collecting. You know, just because Lamborghini or Ferrari comes out with a new model, it doesn't mean that Countach is like no longer valuable. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that old Ferrari GTO is like no longer valuable. But like those things are still there. Just like old cards, they're still authenticated to be old and they are still authenticated uh, you know they're obviously not new and given all the card stock issues we've been kind of having maybe maybe some of these if if it were to happen i'm not saying it is gonna but if it were then can you imagine like some of this old power on like this really funky weird card stock i don't think people would treat them the same well the thing is too like obviously i think the black the beta and alpha stuff and legends all that stuff uh, it might drop a little bit but then the price i think would actually go higher because demand will be higher because there'll be more eyes on those formats once you have more people playing Vintage and Legacy, more people are going to desire the pimp versions, as they call it, which is ultimately going to create more demand for those, which is going to drive the prices higher in the long run, I think. Now, yes, Underground C will no longer be a six to $800 card from Revised, but that's a new thing. Underground C from Revised, yes, it's no longer $20 like it used to be, but being in the $100 to $150 range like it was just a year and a half or two years ago is totally fine. Being $600 to $800, listen, that's a bubble. And if if you would if they reprinted those and you got mad that now your undergrounds aren't worth $600, well, you know, not everything retains its value like that. Sorry, that's just, you know, no one promised you that the underground sea was going to stay worth approaching 1000 bucks. So as an owner of many white-bordered underground 
underground CDs. Yes, I'm happy they're all worth the fortune, but if they were going to reprint them and I had to lose that fortune, guess what? I'm still going to be up a lot. And it's for the greater good of the game. Just so a few people can hold some money, myself included, I would much rather having have legacy tournaments everywhere all the time or even vintage tournaments. Oh my gosh, where everybody could play vintage. I mean, that would be freaking amazing because ultimately that's what magic is for. It's to play. I love it. I love it. Okay, David, rapid fire question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? So if it's something like knowledge or something, I would like to impart that not everybody's competitive, but for those of of you that are, there is variance in the game. So don't be too hard on yourself if you don't succeed when you want to. And to just keep plugging away at it, keep trying and, and look at steps you can do to improve, things you can work on. And eventually you'll get there, but don't beat yourself up over it because you're not defined by your success in magic. Rapid fire question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? Um, the future of Magic the Gathering? I see it continuing along on the same path it has been. I mean, the game is steadily growing. Cards are continuing to come out. Tournaments are getting bigger and bigger. People are more and more people are playing. It's becoming more and more closer to mainstream every every set release. Uh, Arena is looking great. Today, you've got 350 people streaming it, and supposedly Tom Martell even came around and just tweeted, I'm continually impressed. Never thought I'd say this. So it looks like, you know, Wizards of the Coast is doing what they need to do to kind of keep up with the times, uh, and they're working on it. So I think the future is just going to continue down that same path of uh, improving the game we love and, and making it more inclusive to more and more people and more accessible. And last, David, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Follow my Instagram, my Twitter. It's DW Poker Everywhere. I don't know why I'm asking that because I don't really gain anything other than giving you guys an insight into my life. I post pictures and things of me and my daughter. I post magic stuff. Like I just posted yesterday a picture of an uncut beta sheet uh, that I hung on my wall that's gotten probably the most likes I've gotten on a Twitter post in a very long time. So it's kind of cool that people love nostalgia too. But uh, yeah, follow my social media. But that's kind of selfish and doesn't really do much. I mean, my biggest ask would be to... Just make sure you're enjoying the game. Teach others if you can. Try to spread the word. You know, help your friends and your family if they want to learn. Teach them about it. Play with them. Uh, you know, just spread it because the more it spreads, the better it is for all of us. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate all of your words. And also, really, just listening to what you just said, you really are a leader and steward of the game. And uh, you are so talented and smart. I'm just like, I love the fact that you just like min-max and you're so competitive about everything. And uh, really, all the stories that you shared in this interview, you've uh, shared really interesting insight about the way you think about things. Um, But I just love that optimism and just like your uh, fearlessness to be able to jump into a challenge and really explore. You've got a hunger and a curiosity for knowledge and uh, I just I just love that you have a that spice of life and so thank you so much for being part of the Magic the Gathering community thank you so much for your achievements in poker as well as uh, Master Sheffery because uh, when you do that you also help bring a lot of uh, visibility to Magic the Gathering and you've also been such a supportive and wonderful voice for the mainstream community to think about magic and to kind of like learn about magic so thank you so much for everything that you do David thank you for having me this was uh, really cool and I'm honored just I think my first one of my first magic focused podcasts. And I decided, you know, I need time to, to give to my, my main community because I've done a lot of poker ones and other ones and just random various ones about people who succeeded things. But it was time to do one about magic and I hope to do more. It was really cool hearing stories of David's journey. It just goes to show that being competitive and thinking strategically will bring success in many situations from magic to poker to competitive cooking shows. 
David is active on social and you can connect with him on Twitter at DWPoker. David is also on Instagram with the same handle at DWPoker. You can follow Kitchen Table Magic on Twitter at KTM Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I'm on Twitter at Samotango. Kitchen Table Magic is now on Spotify in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and MTGCast.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of my wonderful Patreon supporters. Brian, Marcus, James L., Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Neil, Aaron C., Corey, Chad, Logan S., Nick, Eternal Dirtles, Matthias, Grant, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Carl, David, Matthew, Chris, and Jonathan. We're nearing the end of Season 4, and whenever I'm editing, I think about all of my Patreon supporters throughout the years. Your kind words on social media, likes, follows, and shares, and reviews on Apple Podcasts help new listeners find the show. Thank you to everyone that's liked, subbed, and shared the show, and also thank you to everyone that shared Kitchen Table Magic with a friend. Coming up in the season four finale of Kitchen Table Magic. Recently, I've kind of likened magic, in a sense, to a television show, where you have, let's say, 24 episodes in a season, but not every episode is written by the same person. Different episodes are written by different people. That person is always trying to tell the story of that show, but is adding a bit of themselves into it. And when I'm working on a set, or Aaron Forsyth is working on a set, or Ethan Fleischer is working on a set, we are all trying to make the best magic set we can, given the parameters of the set. We also put a bit of ourselves in it. You know, one of my favorite things to do is kind of slide in Kamigawa cards. I'm a huge Kamigawa fan, so getting something like Yuriko into Commander 2018, totally my jam. I'm also a fan of Popper, so finding places to put commons that are exciting is a really big deal to me. I remember when Ethan Fleischer was working on Commander 2016, I believe, he asked for there to be a bunch of new basic lands in the set and he got them to be Kev Walker lands. I, I believe this was the one. And the reason why being is that there was a format called Artist Constructed. The way this format works is you play all cards in your deck of the same artist, including basic lands. And Kev Walker had a very wide variety of magic cards that he had illustrated, but had never done basic lands before. So by getting those in there now, you could build new decks with that, right? So everyone has their own little formats and own little touches. And you, you might be listening to that story thinking, that's ridiculous. I've never heard of anyone ever playing Artist Constructed, but there is a small contingent of people that play it. And Magic is about not only delighting the huge group, but the small little groups as well. The one and only Gavin Verhey joins us to talk about his life traveling the multiverses of Magic and the world. Gavin is Senior Magic Designer at Wizards of the Coast, and he's the one to carry the torch into the future for Magic the Gathering. He shares stories about how magic is made and his design philosophy to entertain the huge array of magic players out there. Gavin is an avid traveler and believes in experiencing different places and cuisines from around the globe. I hope you'll join us for a very special conversation with Gavin Verhey, all on the season four finale of Kitchen Table Magic. <laughs>